Pod Clubhouse. Yes, it's a good day for singing a song, and it's a good day. Welcome to Dreamland, the Hollywood podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about episode six, Meg. The highest rated episode of the seven series, uh, seven episode series. It was written by Ian Brennan, Janet Mock, and Riley Smith, and directed by Janet Mock. What did you think of this penultimate episode of Hollywood? You know, I really was worried about how the racism theme was going to play out. And I have to say, the burning crosses were shocking. There were a couple of things in this episode that really like made you step back and think about America, especially in, in the you know the times that we're going through right now. The burning cross was really disturbing. Some of the language used to talk about homosexuals was really cutting in this episode. Uh, but the burning crosses and the way it was affecting all of them, you know, not just Archie, not just Camille, but you know, Avis and uh, Claire at their home too. It was it was just really disturbing, and just the chance of keeping the movies white and it, it, the whole thing was it was a little too close to home. Yeah, this is a an especially difficult time to be talking about these episodes because obviously we're going through a Black Lives Matters milestone moment right now. And it's important for us to be thinking about racism and to have an opportunity to watch it unfold in, an, in a series like this. And it's so much more in your face. You, you really saw the characters reacting to it and being so affected. And, you know, I like that they didn't sugarcoat it. They didn't they didn't keep it to just the black characters, but to everyone involved in the enterprise. I like the idea that even though they were warned about the problems that may arise, they didn't go into hiding. You know, so part of me really enjoyed, really appreciated the bravery of Camille and Ray, that they didn't go behind the walls. They stayed in their house. Um, you know, uh, come what may with the protests and with the racists and with the people, you know, objecting to their movie. I think I think we all need some more of that kind of bravery to stand up to hate in general, especially now. Were you surprised that Avis found the guts to stand up to Lon? That fucking guy, man. I mean, what a what a tall villain. He's I mean, he was played for comedy relief through most of the season so far when he's shown up. You know, like the slimy lawyer, which is, you know, no surprise. Lawyers are often played that way. But, you know, it was almost done to a comedic effect. I think he went full, full villain in this episode. So, yeah, I was super happy to see Avis shut him down and stand up to him at the the top of this episode. Let's get right on to the golden tip, because we were kind of right and kind of wrong. Or I should say you were kind of right. And uh, we were kind of wrong in the prediction of who would go make the money. There ended up being women involved in going to earn the $25,000 of cash, but it wasn't the women that we were expecting. What did you think of this whole uh, old timers coming out uh, for fundraising? The montage of having the old, uh, I don't even know what to call them. What do you call an old male? The pros. Well, that's kind. I was thinking like, like the, the, you know, the women, they're, they're definitely like, you know, prostitutes. Yeah. And so I was trying to think of like some, is there like a nice word? I think gigolo is the accepted word oh. for a male prostitute. Okay. So the gigolos and the whores? Ladies of the evening. Oh, hmm. you know, like too much about this. I'm a little frightened about you, you knowing everything about this. Law school is not cheap. Wow. Okay, so you are far more informed than I am. However, I was really happy to see that Ernie was so willing to do it for the dream, man. Do it for the dream. Pulling out his rainy day fun, Mike, man, my heart was just like swelling up. I could not believe that he was going to do all of this for a bunch of kids. 
you know, I, I love the idea that, you know, th that this is his parting gift to the town, to these kids who, you know, he really, when the series begins, when you watch the first opening scenes with him checking Jack out in the bar, you really get like a hard, like maybe pedophile, some kind of real degenerate vibe about him. And man, what, talk about what a mention and what a hero of the story. I think Ernie West, Ernie West is one of the really good guys to come out of this series and knowing how sick he is or how, you know, how sick he seems to be and for him to dip into his funds to, to keep the kids from, uh, to keep the kids from ruining their reputation, Jack, you know, noting that Jack had already been arrested once. Raymond has Camille. Archie is this up and coming already, you know, uh, gay black screenwriter in Hollywood doesn't need, you know, an arrest record on top of it. Just, just really heart of gold stuff from Ernie, and it was great. The montage, you know, seeing seeing the pros come out uh, and and do it, you know, do it for the kids, do it for the dream. I really appreciated that. Them fixing their little caps and everything, like, oh my goodness, the gigolos are adorable. You know, I wasn't surprised that he did it, but I was surprised that in the end he actually didn't raise enough money to meet the twenty five thousand dollars, and so that he went into his rainy day fund. I think that was just against predictable writing, which I appreciated. You would you would think like a montage with this, like they'd end up with like extra cash, you know, like we, we, we threw in 30, you know, just, you know, go buy yourself an extra sign or something like that. But no, he actually had to scrape it together and, and dip into his fund. Uh, you know, part of part of Ernie's story, especially these last couple episodes, is he almost seems to be on kind of a goodbye tour, you know, and you can't take it with you. Right. So uh, so why not? Uh, why not give it to this next generation of kids who maybe can make it? What did you think of Archie and Jack's? Uh, appreciation dinner for him and how that all went down from his reaction to Henrietta and the babies uh, and, and to them giving a part in the movie. What was your what was your take on that whole thing, Caroline? First of all, I thought that scene was hysterical when he asks about Henrietta and the babies and Archie's like, no, like giving him the like, God, don't mention it. And he's like, what? What could it be? Like totally doesn't drop it and just keeps pushing it. When Jack reveals what was going on with them and he's like, oh my God, this is terrific. I was like, Ernie, only you can put it in perspective like this. But, you know, you can totally see where his perspective was. I mean, I think this was something, I don't know if we talked about it on air, but I know, I think we've had this conversation offline, at least, about this show. Jack is in a different place than Henrietta. You know, what Ernie is saying here is kind of dead on. Like, this is, you know, Jack is this up-and-coming movie star. He and Henrietta were just on completely different train tracks. You know, one was good-headed... And one was headed, you know, back east and and one was just headed for stardom. You kind of see where Ernie's coming from with the idea of not being tied down with Henrietta and the babies. And, you know, so I again, just the the reaction, the, the way he's setting up for being devastated at the news, you know, commiserating with Jack, but then turning it into like this rupturous, like, this is amazing news. It was great. It was great. It was classic Ernie. It was classic Ernie. What did you think of uh, them giving him this? Daryl B. Selzman, based on David O. Selznick uh, part. David O. Selznick being the, uh, famously being the producer from Gone with the Wind. I loved it. I felt like it showed how much they really understood Ernie's heart because he didn't want producer credit. He really always wanted to be in the movies and giving him an opportunity to do that, having the studio already had it greenlit and having this opportunity to work with Ellen. I mean, they were literally making his dreams come true. Speaking of Henrietta and Jack and the babies, what did you think of, one, the hospital scene? Were you surprised that Jack even showed up? You got the impression that these guys hadn't seen each other in a while. 
uh, with her giving birth in the hospital. Uh, so did that surprise you? And two, it, how mature their breakup was. I, I thought it was actually a pretty good, pretty good goodbye scene for both of them. They both acknowledged their mistakes. And I was happy to see that Henrietta also was sorry for how it all worked out. Were, were you happy with this split and, and how it ended and how they ended up in their respective places? Or were you looking for something else? I thought that the way you described it, where they were just two different trains on two different tracks, really sums it up well, because there was nothing to be angry at one another about. They just had two different places they were headed. And, you know, at this point, Henrietta has her guy there at the nursery. She has support. She has a plan. Jack, you know, is being successful in his career. There's really no reason to have like sour grapes at one another. So I was I was really glad that they could just move on Uh, and move on. Jack did. Yeah. Moved on right to the, uh, I gotta think, upgrade in Girlfriends with Claire. Um, so, but we're not done with Ernie yet, right? Because now Ernie has this role, and Ernie, who never actually made it into pictures, has to get some acting lessons. And who do we go to for acting lessons in this town? We go to Ellen Kincaid. I gotta tell you, I love these two together. I love their chemistry. I loved, I loved watching him work through the role and how fast he got it. The idea that Ernie really is this natural. I mean, we got a little taste of this when he was reading lines a couple episodes uh, at uh, George Cooker's party with Vivian Lee. Uh, but I, I really liked to see him do the work and it was interesting to watch him. But I love Ellen's lesson to him here that acting is something you have to work with and, and that it's a job. Uh, what, what was your take on these two? Because these are not two that we had seen together. So this is a late series pairing uh, of Ernie and Ellen, especially Ellen being recently love forlorn for Dick. What was uh, what was your take on this? I thought it was perfect that Ernie kind of felt like he was a natural and he, like you know, kind of recoiled a little bit about being corrected by Ellen and needing to be put in his place that like, hey, this is a job and you actually have to refine your skills. The way that she did it, I thought was very skillful and that she, she, you know, she wasn't being rude or chastising or anything, but just reminding him who this character is and guiding him. I think it was another cool behind the scenes Hollywood moment where you got to see how is a character born and how an acting coach can really help shape that. I mean, anyone who can make Jack a halfway decent actor after just a couple of uh, lessons about, you know, close-ups and the need to use your eyes and not your hands because no one's going to see your hands. It didn't surprise me that she would be able to mold him. I was happy that he ended up taking her lessons. You know, you could see someone with his bravado, and I think you were hinting at this, someone with his bravado and, and the idea that he knew what he was doing would would bristle to the point of not taking her advice, but he seemed to. Even though it, maybe it was a hard truth for him to hear, I think he does take it advice, which we get to see play out immediately because we cut from right here to the movie, the actual filming. We get to see his scene in the black and white. What did you think of? Uh... I love that so much. It was such a smooth transition. I, as as the viewer, I was like, oh, my God, we're going to actually see him in the movie. That's a huge payoff for me. A lot of times you just get to see the rehearsal and then they skip what you're going to see like as like the final take. And so I enjoyed so much actually them doing that little twist, which they had done a little bit with one of the other characters. I want to say it was Claire, where they also kind of like twisted it, where we saw her in the black and white format. I think I think you're talking about during the screen test episode, it was Camille, because uh, we get to see Claire in the screen test episode where she's giving her screen test. And then we get to see in the playback room, Camille goes to take the stage. And then we don't actually see her perform the screen test. We get to watch it with 
Henry and Avis and R- and Ray in the in the screening room, and that's the first time we got to see the Camille. But there was a couple times in this episode where we got to see real clips of the movie, which I loved. That, that is a great payoff, which I wasn't expecting, especially since knowing there's only one episode left. There's a lot of ground it feels like still to be covered in the story of Meg and in these in these young people's story. So I was happy that the the show took the time to show us actual film. And, you know, Ernie saying, you know, coming in with the line, you know, I am this town. I mean, brother, you are this town uh, for sure. Uh, what did you think we got when we we actually go to see the Camille Jack Hollywoodland sign? Was was the $25,000 worth it for the Hollywoodland sign that they ended up building and putting together? What did you think? $25,000 sounds like so much money to me and would have been so much money back in 1947 that I got to say, what? <laughs> Why does it cost so much money? But again... To lay people out there, this is how much it costs to make a movie, and it is astounding. But I thought it looked great. I thought the set turned out great, and, you know, I thought that Jack and Camille looked beautiful together, and, you know, I, for me, Jack is still not the actor I want him to have turned into. Like, he was not as smooth and slick and polished for somebody who is supposed to be, like, at this level, but okay. I mean, obviously, he's better than Rock, though. I mean, casting-wise, I think that was definitely the better call. But, you know, I think he agrees. I think Jack agrees with you, though, right? Because when we're in the filming, it, you know, it gets a little meta. You know, he gives the line, you know, be be uh, be the only star in my sky. And, and then he cuts himself. You know, he gives the goddammit, which I noted in my notes was a Hayes Code violation. So at first I was laughing that they put goddammit in there because... As we learned a couple episodes ago, that is a prohibited word in any of its former fashions, no matter how you mean it. Uh, you can't say that, but he's he's really just beating himself up. He's not happy with his delivery, uh, and he cuts himself, and everyone else was into the scene. So it was interesting that he was editing his acting when no one else, when everyone else thought he was doing a good job. Uh, but but you're still not convinced as Jack is as movie star? I feel like I know really great star quality acting when I see it, and maybe he's a very young, young star um, and it's it's silly for us to only have a comparison of versus rock as if there's no other actors in all of Hollywood. But OK, um, you know, overall, though, I mean, I do think that he did great and I appreciated that he he was crying and he was like trying to bring it all. Um, it was just kind of funny to compare it to Ellen giving the advice to Ernie about like how to refine, how to pull back, how to how to make these moments. And then you have Jack just being so over the top dramatic. That was I, just going back to just reliving that scene with Ernie doing the line reading when she has him be more reserved in his delivery, which ends up being more menacing and more threatening. It really did make a difference. A, a, line, a, line, a good line reading really can make the difference. I, I will say that it maybe would have been nice for Ellen to continue working with Jack because I, I think it is a bit lopsided the way the acting is presented here with Claire and Camille and, and presumably a whole stable of women actresses in Ellen's class who are, you know, getting this shit done. And then you have these two, you know, Mama Lukes just kind of wandering out who've got muscles and good looks. And that seems to be enough to be a leading man in, in this Hollywood. Uh, so it does seem to be a little bit lopsided. I can say that all men need to take a note from Ellen in terms of you can always be so much more handsome and so much more engaging if you just pull back a little, like talk a little less, be a little bit more like all in your eyes, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, I think there's a lot to be said of how fucking sexy Ernie turns out to be in that scene. Given the amount that I talk on podcasts, I have not taken that note, but it's uh, something worth noting and uh, thinking about. 
you're going to need to learn how to flip that lighter. You know, everything is going smoothly with this movie production, it seems. Uh, even even the gigolos pitching in their cash. So you knew there had to be some kind of wrench in the works. And I think that wrench comes in the form of Henry Wilson, producer extraordinaire. Mike, I have to ask you, is it the producer's role to be a part of editing? Because I don't really know. I think producer has a lot of different meanings depending on how you have earned that credit. I, I think it is rare for a producer to insist on and get uh, final cut. Uh, privileges, which is what Henry's really going for here. That is usually a studio and that's like an editor's decision. And directors of note uh, can sometimes negotiate for and get final cut. But I don't think it is a single producer and not even an executive producer uh, who gets that right. That, that, seemed, that seemed more of him trying to play over, maybe overplay his trump card of the blackmail and extortion that he kind of holds over Avis's head and Jack's head and Dick's head and everyone else's head because he knows everyone where all the bodies are buried. When he makes the big swimming pool choreographed dance number suggestion, did you think anyone was going to take it seriously? No, but I did laugh out loud. That is that is maybe the most Henry kind of suggestion kind of out of la- left field. Just the idea of like, I've seen that in movies and, and I know people like that in movies without any kind of regard to whether or not that's appropriate for this movie. And I think that's the point, right? That's what Henry's missing is, yeah, big splashy numbers with, you know, mermaids coming up out of the water holding like, you know, uh, sparklers in their teeth and dancing a choreographed number. That's a thing that existed in in big studio movies at this time. But dude, since the the tone, Meg is not about that. Not not even at all. Okay, for one thing, I would like to say you should clearly be a choreographer because sparklers in your teeth. I mean, that's like hot number kind of stuff coming up out of the water with it lit. I mean, these are some high-grade sparklers that are waterproof. I would also like to remind you that Henry may not be thinking of movies. He may be thinking of his scarf dance and how fancy he is, and he just wanted to see a musical number. I did like the idea, though, that the big swim number would cut to black and the end of the movie. That is uh, that is some avant-garde filmmaking suggestion on his part. But I think the, uh, the unsung hero of the screening room uh, scene is is Harry, the curmudgeon editor, who basically puts Henry in his place for the first time of anyone in this series. You know, basically tells him, you've got horrible fucking ideas, please leave. Uh, but then he tells, you know, that he, he drops some knowledge on Ray, right? He says, I banged Gloria Swanson in this room. And by the way, I like your picture and I like what it says, kid. Uh, what did you think of uh, Harry? This guy's right up your alley. Uh, you know he's up my alley. You know I'd want to be best friends with Harry. He is the guy who has seen it all, done it all, including Gloria. And do you just you just want to like sidle up to him and listen to him talk all day long? I hope we get to see Harry more. Just as a complete tangent and an aside, I have made a habit of looking up pictures of the various women who have been name dropped throughout the series for having you know good gams or good tits or good lays, whatever it may be. And I, I think across the board, they were all pretty right for their time. There's really been no like, ugh, I don't think anyone looked up a picture of what that woman really looked like or, or guy. And as for that matter, you know, I, I think I think there are a lot of pretty people in the 20s, 30s and 40s in Hollywood. It's interesting. Yeah. No, I said it was a tangent. I'm just saying I do the research, people. Good call. Good call. Way to put in the time of looking up <laughs> pinup models. Now we know why this episode is coming out two weeks later than it probably should have been. Uh, all right. So let, let's get past Harry, the happy curmudgeon. 
Uh, and let's move to one of the main love storylines in this series. Archie buys Rocka House. What did you think of that? Did you see that coming? Did you see Archie's declaration of love? I don't know if I didn't see it coming, but I didn't know exactly where we were going. And I definitely thought it was a proposal, not a house key. Were you tricked by that twist? I totally was. I mean, I put in my notes, gives a key like a proposal, which I think for the time and place, I think maybe that was kind of the equivalent. You know, even as someone who is coming to appreciate his feelings for what they are and embrace them and no longer want to hide himself or his love or his boyfriend. I think the idea of still getting married maybe was too radical even for Archie at this point. So I think giving a key for these two men to live together really was his version of a ring. Well, and remember, they really haven't been together that long. So it it, it was a dramatic um, presentation but it was appropriate milestone-wise. Like, they're moving in together. They're getting a place together in a way that's both of their place. And so it was a sweet, you know, presentation. And it would have been really early in a relationship, any relationship, to be offering marriage. I have Fair. But Rock also, you know, is a soft heart. And something tells me he probably falls in love very fast. I think this is probably maybe the most, ro- if, you, if you're rock, this is probably the most romantic thing Archie or any boyfriend or anyone who ever loved him could possibly have done. I think, I think this was a really good call on Archie's part. Mike, this is super romantic for anyone. Forget about rock or soft heart. That is so romantic to be like presenting it on your knee and everything and not just be like, hey, go make a copy at the hardware store. Uh, here's the keys. I'm like tossing on the counter. That's what a lot of people would do. And this was like, Way thought out and planned with all the candles and stuff. I mean, anyone would be swept off their feet. Moving on from this established romance, we get to Claire and Jack, who for some uh, unknown reason are still going to Schwab's. Jack, why are you still going here? Did your did your duplicitous baby mama wife not teach you a lesson? Stop going to this fucking restaurant. Are there no other places in Hollywood for you to go to, my man? But anyway, he takes Claire. He goes to Schwab's. He talks about how she's been a good friend to him. It's interesting how Jack has actually been pretty obtuse to Claire's romantic overtures. And I somehow give him credit for that, for for not quickly jumping in the sack with her, which I think a lot of shows would have had that happen. Um, but he's really seemed to appreciate Claire on a friend level. And, and, and I like the scene where he talks, you know, to her, you know, you've been a good friend to me, even if you don't know it, you know, you... And among other things, you'll let me cry when I can't cry in front of the boys. You've been like this real shoulder to turn to in in this kind of time of need. And really, Jack, I mean, Jack has been through it, learning about Henrietta and the babies not being his. And, you know, as consumed, I think, as he is with himself, I still think that that hit him in a really hard way. So I'm happy that Claire has been able to been there for him. What, what's your take on the whole Claire and Jack thing? And, and do you like them together even? Is this a thing that you're encouraging? I think that the fact that Jack has slept with Claire's mom is forever going to be a little bit odd for me. I mean, they're the natural pairing when it comes to this crew because it's kind of like 90210 or anything. It's like everybody's got to pair off with someone else at some point. So, you know, here's Claire. She's available. Here's Jack. He's available. Well, we've got to pair them up. So, okay, cool. I guess. Um, I don't, I don't super love them together, but. I guess it works for me. I I mean, I don't know that I could ever get over sleeping with my mom. Well, that's fair. It's weird how it hasn't come up more. Hey, boned your mom a couple times. 
went to an estate sale even with her to buy back her what? Her shaker? Her pepper shaker? What, what was it that she bought at the estate sale? I can't remember what it was, but whatever it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, they... Uh, oh, the colander. That's what it was. It was uh, buying back uh, his colander. Uh, anyway, uh, so... Yeah, it, totally odd, but I'm looking past that. I like these two together. I like how kind of cute, and again, I think I like them more together just because they didn't jump into bed together right away. Uh, they have slow-rolled their friendship, at least from Jack's point of view. It's been a friendship first, and if anything's going to happen, even at this point, I mean, she she invites him to go to the premiere together, but even still on his end, it's not like he's like, all right, let's, so we're going to go home and bone first or no. I mean, it's been like a real slow boil, which I appreciate because I think that again, you know, so many of the things I've enjoyed about Hollywood have been the not predictable TV trope avenues that they've chosen, which I give any show credit for, for avoiding those things. Speaking of Claire's parents, guess who's back on the scene, Mike? One Ace Amber. Man, this was this was dispiriting. Uh, watching East return, uh, I mean, I guess I'm happy that he's not dead because you never really want to wish that upon anyone. That's some bad juju to put out in the universe. But I mean, it's immediate that he starts undoing all of the positive changes Avis has put into place over you know time. One lawn, that piece of shit is on fire, but Avis is immediately put on ice. I mean, he sends her home to go make dinner, go make some nice dinner of rice and fruit juice. I mean, the hell. Uh, but this, you know, I, I said at the beginning of the episode, in, you know, there was the visuals of the crosses burnings that really struck home for me. But the use here of fag, uh, you know, Lon saying, you know, the fag and the ladies went behind your back. And and then Ace being like, fag, like, fag and not putting it together about dick and stuff. But just that word is so harsh and so violent. And, and even... Just re- it bothered me. I don't know why. It just really struck me as weird. It just it's such an antiquated word that you don't hear in normal circles anymore today. Even you know, I don't know. It it, it was really disturbing to me. But what was your take about the the triumphant return of Ace and the seemingly undoing of all of the good works uh, that Ace put in play? And and were you immediately concerned about the future of Meg? I was definitely concerned about the future of Meg, though I had no idea how they were really going to finish out this journey because it seemed like we had a pretty huge foil here with Ace coming back and then quickly putting Avis back into the the household management. It just felt like I don't really get how we're going to undo this again. I agree with you that using terms like fag, like just it like made my ears bleed. Like I was like, what is happening? This is. It was, it was like a whiplash. It was, it was like a, it was like a slap across the face, you know, like, or like hitting like cold water, still water, like really hard. It was that kind of violence. I really, really appreciated having Dick step forward and come and talk to Ace and be so clear with with his line now. I mean, he had decided in the last episode that he was no longer hiding, that he was going to live his life, and he was going to start standing up for people who can't stand up for themselves, even when he can't really be who he wants to be. In this setting, he can say, I am a fag. I am a homosexual. I am in love. And here's what's going to happen next. I know stuff about you and you're either going to go and, and and have this movie come out and maybe it will ruin the studio. But if you don't, I'm going to ruin you. That was so right on for Dick's storyline. Like they, they kept to it. I, I was, I was really happy for that consistency from the last episode. I, I agree a hundred percent. I think Dick emerged a couple episodes, I think as my favorite character in the whole series, 
just because of him dealing with the internal demons and wrestling with them. Once we learned that he he has to go through life every day, really living this secret and the secret that he's his shame about, but also turning this corner and, and really standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves in the in this Hollywood system, really, really, really endears him to me, and I, I imagine to a lot of viewers. And I love the scene. I love the ultimatum. I love the idea of, it, you know, release the movie and it may bankrupt your studio. If you don't release it, basically guaranteeing I'm going to just come after you. And, you know, Dick knows where all the fucking bodies are buried. Were you surprised, uh, backing up a second, were you surprised that Ace got so teary-eyed that he enjoyed, that seemingly, seemingly enjoyed Meg as much as he did? Again, you know, he says later on, this is not an Ace Amberg kind of movie. There were no dogs. There were no tits. There was no war. Uh, I, I uh, well, I guess there were tits, but there were no tits like he means it. But uh, were, were you surprised? It, you know, this is Ace's change world. This is the Oz moment for this episode. The the way Ace proceeds once he sees Meg. So I had mentioned this in a previous episode, and um, I'm glad that you asked me that. Normally, I would have said that Ace's change of heart was unearned. I would have felt like there's no way this guy who has led the life he has, treated people the way he has, and made decisions the way he has, would suddenly watch a movie, get yelled at by his right-hand man, and be a completely different person. However, uh, my own mom went through heart surgery, and I mentioned a couple of episodes ago that that changes someone. For whatever reason, medically, it changes your personality. It's very odd, but it does. It mellows you. It somehow makes you more emotional. And so because of my personal experience, I believed it. I really believed that he would have more compassion and he would have, funny enough to say, but like a change of heart because of his own heart attack and everything he had been through. It really did make sense to me, but I could see how a lot of audience members who had not had that personal experience I had had would say, you know what, this is far too unbelievable. This is the Oz moment. But I'm actually saying this is kind of realistic. I mean, I've seen people mellow who were really hard ass people. Yeah, I, I think I think it is actually something it seems like it's almost a trope. But I think it, in real life, you're right, it does seem to repeat itself. People face their mortality. And I think that changes the, their view on what's really important and what's not important. And and Ace says it perfectly in, in Avis when Avis, you know, he gets the one, two punch, he gets it from Dick, his right hand man. And then he gets it from his wife at home where she completely revolts and, you know, demands to be the co-chair and, and then, but makes it a pitch as a wife though, who stepped into his shoes when he went down, you know, let me carry what you can't. And, and Ace, maybe to everyone's surprise, but maybe in this change world, not, not really surprising agrees. I do want to say that I applaud Avis's approach for that because there are many ways you can talk to a guy, ladies. One of the ways is by saying, I deserve this. I'm 50% of this marriage and therefore I deserve my piece of the pie. But by instead coming at it like, let me carry the load. Let me share the burden of all these decisions and all the hard work you have to do. That's so much more genuine and coming from a place of actually wanting to be a partnership instead of demanding what you're owed. Bravo to that. Do that, ladies. Which is an interesting twist, because if you if you think back to Dick and Ellen convincing Avis to cast Camille, the ploy that Dick takes with Avis is, what does it matter to you? 
No matter what happens to Ace Studios, the painting hanging behind us right now will pay for your entire life as comfortable as you could ever hope to be. He makes the financial calculation pitch to her of do the right thing because in the end, no fallout, no amount of fallout from this can really harm you in any way. And I think that works with her and I, and I think it works a bit with her, but here she takes the difference. She doesn't make a financial pitch. She makes a, like the emotional pitch of, you know, let me be your partner, not let me blackmail you, even though God knows she probably could. Um, but it's really Ace here who has the turnaround that, that I that I focused on. Not only him talking about and, and being self aware to say, you know, it's not the movie I would make, but I think that's the point of this, right? That's what he says to 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 Avis. And to that I wrote my notes, yes, Ace, yes, it is the point. It, that's the thesis of Hollywood. That Ace represents the system as it is. But that's not the point, right? We want to do things differently. Not do we don't want to keep doing the things the way Hollywood has always been done and unfortunately largely continues to be done. Uh, we want to change it, you know. And so I really liked the idea of Ian Brennan and Ryan Murphy talking to us in this scene and restating the premise of the show, which they hadn't done in a while. So so clearly anyway. Um, but more importantly, he has this revelation and he says to Avis, you know, I've been thinking, you know, how do I want to leave this world? And more importantly, what do I want to leave in it? And I think that's a really powerful, that's a powerful question that not enough people ask themselves, but certainly powerful white men in Hollywood don't ask themselves probably nearly as much as they should. The idea of doing what is right instead of doing what is easy. I think that in addition to speaking to that concept, I think that the writer spoke to the idea of women and, and the concept of, you know, relegating women to your the house and running the household, you're doing a disservice to yourself. You know, she is a, a fantastic partner. She has run this in your absence. Stop overlooking your greatest partner and, you know, make her your equal and bring her up and listen to what she has to say. Bring her to the table. I think that's huge. And, you know, I, I know that that isn't something that we've talked a lot about, really, the feminism aspect of a lot of the show. But in many ways, you know, women have been brought forward. It was much more about Camille getting the role. Yes, I understand because of color, but also we did focus the story on her so much more than the male actors, really. So if you look at that equality portion, gender wise, females got a lot more screen time, I think. And even more than Archie breaking a color barrier, which for sure they hit upon, but it was much more a, the focus on the the gender and the color too uh, of Camille got a lot more attention in play in let's change how Holly let's give Hollywood that rewrite um, so so I think it's right I think the idea of Ellen and Avis and Camille and Claire even coming into her own and and Jean Crandall not being put out to pasture I think this show is a powerful statement for it's time to let women have a hand because God knows men fuck enough things up. So maybe, maybe women should uh, have a say, but like so many things in the show, Caroline, the next morning comes, but she, she walks into the room and uh, Avis and Ace have clearly, you know, made up and, you know, cause he agreed to the studio and he does seem like a changed man. And um, she walks into the room to tell him about breakfast I want to say also to that point about he's being a changed man. Again, I want to highlight Avis is a changed woman. When she was defending her actions to Jack, she was like, well, he deserves it. He's done shitty things to me, so I'm going to do shitty things to him. 
when you look at her now, this whole concept of, you know what, it's time to stop treating each other like shit and, and really support each other and encourage each other and make this work together. So I don't want to overlook Avis's obvious growth within her own marriage and the way that she's handling people, including Claire. And then of course, you know, obviously the larger studio decisions having to do with race and everything, we completely see that. But, but these small moments of, of changing her heart and saying like, okay, this is not about punishing anyone anymore. We, we need to work together. I think I don't want to overlook those little things. And again, just going back to your, you know, question that you rightly ask, I think often, especially in this show is, is this earned? Is this development earned? And I think we saw the turning point with Avis when Jean comes to her in the commissary and tells her about the affair and, and wants to quit and go work for craft television. Uh, and, and Avis won't let her and says, if I fired you for having an affair with my husband, then I would be a hypocrite. And, and the idea of Avis taking ownership for the wrongs that she has done and no longer using Ace's actions and infidelities and bad treatment of her as a justification for her actions. I think that's a big turning point. And, and, and looking where we are now at the end of episode six here, I think you have to view that whole scene in this new light of, you know, man, real, real character development. There's been a lot of Ava's character development from not from the, the sense that we got so early on in the series where maybe she was she was a little bit racist and not not super OK with Archie being the screenwriter on Peg at that point um, to, to the convincing it took for her to cast Camille, you know, doing the right thing, even though it wasn't the easy thing to, to hear. Uh, to forgiving Gene than to here and and coming to Ace and wanting to bury the hatchet on the bad treatment that they've each caused each other. So really well earned, I think. To her credit, she sadly fucked Ace to death. Was that a surprise to you? Did you see it coming? Or I think there was a little bit of a telegraph, but how far before she walks into the room and sees his lifeless body in the bed? Uh, did you did you did you sense something was wrong or did it catch you completely by surprise? She was so over the moon happy. Everything was going so smoothly that morning that I wasn't exactly ready for Ace to be out of the the story at this point. However, I also thought that it was remarkable that he came back in the story. I mean, for for a lot of this this whole entire series, once he was out, it didn't really seem like he was going to come back in. Like somehow he was going to be a vegetable and then I don't know, eventually he was going to pass away, but I didn't really even see him having this arc. So I guess I, that's going to be my silver lining. He got to come back. He got to make good with his wife in theory with Claire. I, I want to think that she thinks a little better of him um, and, you know, has a change of heart. And sadly that was his entire story. So really he didn't have anything else to do, but that right. And, and needed to hand it back to Avis because this needed to really be her success. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they could have left him out and it wouldn't have been any less impactful. But I do like, I think it's consistent with the show and the idea of let's rewrite Hollywood for him to look like he is going to pick up the status quo that his advisors like Lon want him to continue on with, but then have the change of heart to, to get the hard talk from Dick, to get the hard talk from Avis and, and, and show a clear change again earned it may be in a quick arc but but no less satisfying so in the end i'm happy that they brought him back to go through those experiences because again i think you get to the same endpoint uh without him coming back 
but I, I found the whole thing much more cathartic for him to have gone through that. If you sat through that dinner scene and you winced at the fact that he made everyone wait while he was getting a blowjob in the office and, you know, you had to put up with him being just such a gross character, giving him a moment to redeem himself here, even just a conversation with his wife, um, some overnight activities, then, you know, I, I guess that's part of the charm of Hollywood is that everyone's supposed to have a moment to be able to redeem themselves. Insert sound effect here. Until 4 a.m., according to Claire. Uh, but we're not done yet. I mean, this is sad. This is this is definitely sad face news. But we still have two more twists of the knife before we're done with this episode. We cut to Henry playing around with his uh, megalomaniac Henry Wilson, playing around with his own cut of the movie using not Harry, the happy curmudgeon editor, but Randy, the new young editor. And, you know, nothing's good is going to come out of, of out of a Henry cut. But I guess something does come out of the conversation, though, because Henry is confused. And I'm curious what your, your thought about this is, about the point that he makes here after hearing Randy speak. Henry raises the question, why does she kill herself? You know, we, we understand from reading the script about she gets cut out of the movie and it's, she's had enough. And so she goes and she wants to throw herself off the sign. But why is Henry's question? And, and Randy says, uh, you know, she had built her whole world around Hollywood and around being in this movie and around what it represented. That was it. So, so being cut from the movie was kind of the last straw for her. And Henry has this, this, this brainstorm that there needs, there's a missing scene from here. What he, what he describes as a quiet scene. And Ray comes in with, with Harry. And, you know, erupts. But but Henry makes a point to him. And, and to Ray's credit, Ray is willing to listen. He is open to listening to, to to this criticism. And to this point, the idea of people in Hollywood maybe understand that drive and that disappointment. But America as a whole can't probably identify with the, I'm going to kill myself because I was cut from a movie. When you say it, when you just say it out loud, it seems it, it seems vapid. Frivolous. Frivolous. Thank you. That's the word. But there's a real underlying human emotion here at work. And, and I think that's the point that Henry ends up making and convinces Ray is missing from, from the story. So, I'm, you know, in the end, this, this was set up as a villainous twist. But Henry kind of accidentally, I think, walks into a really good note that in the end would make, make a better picture. What did you think of the Henry tampering with the movie scene? completely scared me. I mean, I felt like he was absolutely going to screw this whole thing up and, you know, absolutely made me concerned. I do think that the conversation about the greater population outside of Hollywood doesn't understand what this is all about. And, you know, giving an opportunity for the show to kind of fill in the blanks there and say, look, this is why someone would be this upset. Even in just this conversation, really, I think, adds to the the message overall of Hollywood of like of, of they've tried to show that there there are artists, there are screenwriters, there are editors, like they tried to show you different parts of the movie making experience. And this is part of it, too, about how your heart's on the line. And, you know, you've just thrown your entire life into other people's hands that can just crush you in a second. But I had said that there were two evil twists at the end of this episode. And I guess the Henry one turned out to be not so evil a twist. But then there is one. Lon, that son of a bitch lawyer, he strikes again. 
he shows up, he seizes the film to Ray and Harry and, and Henry and Randy. No one really cares about Randy. But, I mean, three important people in the film, three important people in the film standing there and, and watching all of their reels be taken by, by Lon and his goon squad. Uh, and they're going to burn the film. And uh, we and we're told we we know already, but they, but Ray finds out that that Ace Hamburg is dead, and you know everything that they've worked for has maybe literally gone up in flames. What was your reaction to watching the scene? But even more to the kind of visceral scene of the being in the fire and watching the films be tossed into the flames. What was your reaction as the episode ended? So several parts to this for me. Um, I have a lot of little creatives in my house and I absolutely wince at the idea of ruining um, or destroying someone's art. Like that just makes me feel just like I want to throw up because people just put everything into it. And again, we're going back to that whole idea of that. This is, this is art. These are people's work, but it's their passion. And so to watch the film that is so fragile, the little celluloid just, just so easily going up in smoke felt so awful. I do have to say on sort of a comedic note, someone was walking through the room when I was watching it and they, they go, wow, um, how convenient that they have a film burning furnace like just nearby. And I was like, yeah, I guess that was a little far-fetched. But still, you know, I, I want to hope that there is going to be a safety net in place because I really, I understand and I've asked a bunch of people, would it have been common to have only one Print. copy of the film? Would there only be one copy of the film? I don't really know. So that's something that like, if that's common, then, you know, someone has to tell me, or if it's not common, if it's like, no, there would have been one original and that's it. Especially I guess pre-edit, because I know that they obviously make copies to then send out to the movie houses, but I guess pre-edit for the original, would there only be one? I don't know. I mean, back in the day, I, I, I imagine it must have been cost prohibitive to make too many copies of it, especially a movie still in uh, production. But, you know, Harry also is a pro. And, and, you know, I mean, you don't get the bang Gloria Swanson if you're if you're not thinking about the rainy day. Um, so, you know, here's fingers crossed because we still have a full episode left to go of this uh, series. So really depressing if this ends up being the end of the line for Meg the movie. I agree with you that watching someone destroy someone's art is is a is a really disturbing image. But the idea of seizing artwork and destroying it is such a such an idea of like a fascist government kind of thing. You know, think think of oppressive governments. You know, and and the the destruction of art as a way of censoring it. I mean, they could have just kept this shit in the fucking vault. They didn't need to actually destroy it. So taking the step of seizing all of the reels and throwing them into the furnace on the lot, which I imagine was used for other things, not just for burning film. Uh, but the, the, the idea of that's the step that they felt that they needed to take is really disturbing. It's really disturbing in a world where you are worried about your freedoms being curtailed. You're worried about not being able to walk safely down the street. And you're worried about what freedoms you have today that maybe you won't have tomorrow. The idea of sh destroying art is always a harbinger of worse things to come. So I was, I was really unnerved by an episode that was just too timely by half, but this final scene was really disturbing on, on several levels, I thought. 
So most of the time when we go through stories like this, and especially when we're coming up to a finale, I like to try to think about what is a reasonable end to our story. We only have one episode left. So if there is no copy of this film, I sat here and I tried to think like, well, so what is the ending? Where do these people go? Where do these characters go? And I'm telling you, Mike, I could not come up with any prediction that really makes any sense. So I'm curious for you, is there any way that this story ends where the film doesn't make it out? I can't see in this idea of rewriting Hollywood that you would take us to the brink and and do all of the work of reimagining all of these different facets of Hollywood only to have this fascist motherfucker destroy your film and then that be it. You know, look what it took to just raise $25,000. So I don't think the idea of scraping money together and remaking the film, I don't think that seems viable. I think the only thing is that there's some kind of, you know, deuce ec machina copy of the film around there somewhere, which, you know what, I'm totally okay with. I've, I've come along, I've, I've punched my ticket, I am on board with this ride. I want to see what happens with this film. So I'm hoping that someone had one be like, oh, I made a copy for a rainy day, you know, just kind of hanging out uh, somewhere. Uh, and so we could see the end of the story next week. Because I, I think we're coming up to an end of a story. There seems like to be a natural break here. We, we've gone so fast through the production and now in the editing of the movie, it seems it seems like there has to be a natural end to the story. What do you think? Well, we talked about in previous episodes about, you know, was it possible that Gene Randall's movie was going to come out and then that was going to be um, some sort of competition in a an awards season? Again, not foreseeing anything about the film getting burned. So I'm still kind of hanging in there that there has to be something more there. I, I cannot come up with a way that uh, this movie does not get produced. I don't know exactly who would have a copy. Maybe when they read Ace's will or something, they'll find out that like, oh, and P.S. all copies of all things were placed in the vault as they always are, you know, something like that, where something very reasonable to his death would actually save the day. Um, that all makes sense to me. So there really could be um, a myriad of reasons why we could find a copy, but I just, uh, I cannot imagine a situation in which we've watched the series and everyone just was like, well, nice try, <laughs> like, and goes home. Well, I mean, at, the, at a minimum, hopefully we have some kind of hashtag trending next week when we go to talk about episode seven of, uh, you know, release the Snyder Cut. You know, maybe Zack Snyder's grandfather might have worked on this fictional movie and there's a Snyder Cut of the movie hanging around. And I think, fingers crossed, that's the best we can hope for. But, you know, it wouldn't put it past me that Henry, you know, made a version of this movie where he did put in his fucking, you know, water number. So maybe he's got multiple copies that he's been playing around with. Someone's got to have a copy of the movie. Someone's got to have a copy. It's the only way it works. It's the only way that works in, in a way that it doesn't take a lot of time to explain it and we can move on from it. I am crossing my fingers for that. This is Caroline. And this has been Mike. Thanks for listening to Welcome to Dreamland, the Hollywood podcast. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.